say that I've been to so many camps even already this summer and nobody, I want to go on record as saying nobody does food as good as Piney Woods. Could we give it up for the Piney Woods staff? Oh my goodness. It has been amazing and I'm so grateful for this incredible place and these incredible people. I'm thankful for you. You are awesome and you're great listeners and Happy campers, amen, and uh, I want to just divide the auditorium in half real quick, just draw a line straight down the middle, and I want to ask everyone over here on this side, if you would just find someone over there and and stare them down, pick out a random person, maybe someone you've never met before, look at them, just like stare them dead in the eye, almost like a staring contest, okay? Did you find them? Say yes if you found somebody. Here's what I want you to say, everybody on this side, looking at them, repeat after me, say, I want God to do something good in me tonight. Now, you don't lose their gaze over here. Keep staring at them. Keep staring them down. Here, okay, look at them. Look, at, look back at them. Repeat after me. Say this, good, you need it. Yeah, that's good. Amen. We're, uh, we're here because we want God to speak and it's going to be, it's going to be awesome. I want you to open your Bibles with me tonight to the book of Matthew chapter 5. It's where we're going to be every single time that we gather under this tabernacle, Matthew chapter 5. And while you're turning there, tune in for a second. Let me tell you something. Most people are not happy. They're not. I'm here to tell you that most people are not happy. In fact, according to a national poll conducted by the Associated Press that polled some 300 to 400,000 people, a large cross-section from east to west coast, according to this recent poll, just 14% of the United States adults say that they are, quote, very happy. And that's actually down from only 31% in 2018 in the United States of America that said they were happy. Over 50% of the nation describes themselves by words like isolated and lonely and depressed. And as a whole, our nation, as a matter of fact, as a whole, our planet and the residents of it were plagued by this disease of unhappiness. In fact, in the United Kingdom, they've just recently appointed what they call a minister of loneliness. They were taking a look at the epidemic in their culture of people who are describing themselves as unhappy and lonely. And that lack of happiness creates a void that people are searching for other things to fill. And it's become so detrimental to culture and to society that the government is starting to get involved and research and ask the question, what can we do? Why are people so unhappy? And the sad reality is this, the same is so true for most Christians. You know that many believers are just not sure if they're ever going to be truly happy. When the truth of the matter is this, listen, Jesus is in the happiness business. Did you know that God is concerned with the happiness of his children? He is. And among the many scriptures where that principle rings true, we found ourselves this week 
In the book of Matthew chapter 5, where the first recorded sermon of Jesus opens with the constant theme of happiness. Here's the longest recorded continuous sermon in scripture. And as I mentioned last night, the beautiful thing about this one is this is not just the Holy Spirit speaking through a person and through the personality of a writer. This is Jesus talking. This is God talking. This is our Savior speaking. And so tonight, let's just pick Jesus' brain a little bit, shall we? Let's, let's ask him Let's ask him a big question. It's the elephant in most rooms around the world. Here it is. Why are people unhappy? Why? Why are people unhappy? And if we were to ask Jesus, okay, nine times in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, you use the word blessed. We talked about that last night. It's the Greek word makarios, which translates happy. Jesus says, you want to know who's happy? Nine times he explains who's happy who has Christ's happiness. So Jesus, why are people so unhappy? And Jesus would say to us, well, I'm gonna need a little bit more information because there's really two types of people. And depending on what group you fall in determines which answer you're gonna get. So Jesus, what are the two groups of people? And Jesus would say to us, well, there are, I don't divide people up by race. God doesn't do that. He doesn't divide people by socioeconomic status. Doesn't, he doesn't do that. He says there's really, really two groups of people. God's not looking at your flavor sin or your color skin. He says two types of people. Ready? Saved and lost. Two types. When God looks down from heaven, he's not going, oh, a white person, a black person, a yellow person, a purple person. If, if we saw a purple person, we'd freak out. If you see a purple person this week, call the nurse. They need some help, okay? God's not looking down saying that. He's saying, have you been covered by the blood of my son? Are you redeemed or are you not? That's the question. And so we say, okay, Jesus, why are lost people unhappy? And the answer really simply is this, because you cannot know true happiness unless Christ lives inside you. In this passage of scripture we're studying called the Beatitudes, every single one of them is antithetical to the operating system of the world. And Jesus would say, if you're lost, and he would say to you tonight, if you do not know me as your savior, you will never, ever, ever be truly happy until you do. Why are lost people so unhappy? Because it's impossible for them to be truly happy. And we'll talk about that later this week. But tonight, the deeper question is, okay then, Jesus, nine times, happy are, happy are, happy are. Here's the question, why are most Christians so unhappy? I mean, if they've got Jesus as their savior, if he's living inside of them, then what's their deal? What's the problem? (laughs) You know, there's a, a story that I want to tell you because for a few reasons, this is not being live streamed, so I can say it. And uh, two, the person who I want to tell you this story about is no longer alive, so she's not going to be upset. As I travel around the country, I get to meet so many different types of people. And sometimes that's a tremendous blessing, and sometimes it's a tremendous other thing. And um, I was preaching... 
at a church that my dad had preached at as well, and he had warned me about one particular person that I was going to encounter, but I forgot. I don't, I don't have any pictures. I don't, I don't see anything. I don't, I, I'm just here preaching at this church in Indiana when on Sunday morning, I'm walking around shaking people's hands, and I'm asking the question that you and I ask culturally. I'm asking, hey, how are you? And when you normally ask somebody, hey, how are you? What's their typical answer? Yeah, I'm good. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. You know, and that's what we do in America. We walk around, we ask one another, hey, how are you doing? How are you doing? We don't actually care. We're just asking because it's like a polite way of saying hello. How are you doing? And you say, good. And then, I, and then you ask me. And I say, great. I say, fine. I, I live in the dream. You know, it's one of those. And then we move on our merry way. And we're, we're, we're kind of hoping, we're hoping that they'll just lie to us and say that they're doing good. Right? That's what we're hoping for, but I have learned to stop asking people how they're doing because some people will tell you. Some people are like not fixing a lie in church and they will let you know. And this particular Sunday morning, I'm out shaking people's hands and I'll be honest with you, like, cause we can be real here at camp, not really caring what their answer is. I'm just trying to be nice, just trying to be polite. How are you? Hoping for a good, how are you? Great, moving on, but no, not Nancy. (laughs) She will forever be known as Negative Nancy. Like, we'll never be able to move beyond that nickname because I shook her hand and she grabbed hold of it and would not let go. And she begins to speak. I say, hey, how are you doing? And she begins with, well... And if anybody begins with, well, you're in for a treat. Let me just tell you. How are you doing? She says, well, I'm here. And I'm thinking like, well, don't do us any favors, you know. She's like, I didn't even know if I was going to make it today. I just, I didn't hardly get any sleep last night. I've been struggling for weeks upon weeks. I got more diseases and sicknesses than I could even tell you, taking 17 medications. And I got this corn on my foot that's been bothering me for days. You better believe she took off her shoe and showed me that corn. Now, I like... (laughs) When I read my Bible, the Bible's pretty clear about once you're saved, you're, you're, you're never losing it. But for a minute there, I was questioning if I was about to lose my salvation right here. Because of the thoughts running through my mind, there's, there's really one major thing that I never, ever want to see. And that's a corn on your foot. Okay? High on the list. And so she shows it to me. And I'm, well, what I'm thinking is like... <laughs> I wonder if she washed her hands. <laughs> like, my hand is touching her hand that has for sure touched that corn. And so finally, I break away. I go and scrub my hands in scalding hot water for about seven minutes, and I pray, and I preach, and I come back on Sunday night. We're going to be preaching at this church from Sunday through Friday night. And so Sunday night, I'm walking around, and I'm shaking people's hands, and I'm saying, hey, how are you? And all of a sudden, here she is, and I forgot. And I said, hey, how are you? And she said, well, I'll tell you what, that corn hadn't gotten any better. And then she pulled off her shoe and showed it to me again. 
And so Monday night, I'm like, I've got a strategy. I am prepared. And so what I do is I get to the church early, and I'm kind of shaking people's hands, and I see Nancy walking through the door. And so I excuse myself to the pastor's office, and I just kind of hide there for a minute and pray. And while I'm back there, the music begins to play. And so the first song begins, and what I do is I kind of sneak around, and I walk up to my spot right on the front row, and I'm singing, and I'm praising and I am thanking the Lord that I didn't see Nancy today. And all of a sudden, without any warning, we're, I mean, we're in the middle of, you know, like, who even knows what the song was at that particular year? You know, Lord, I lift your name on high. And I feel. And I turn, and you'll never guess who it was. And she said, I'll see you after service. I don't even have time to tell you about what happened every single night until I finally just had to say, I do not want to see the corn on your foot. Do not show it to me again. You know what's funny about that is, though, if I were to take the story of Negative Nancy, which is 100% true, and tell it to the average non-churchgoer, if I were to say, hey, let me tell you about somebody I met in church, and I were to tell them the story of Negative Nancy, do you know what most people would say? You know what most people in the world would say about that? They'd go, huh, classic Christian. Classic Christian. That's exactly what we think Christians are. That's exactly what Christians do. Christians are always so negative. That sounds just like a Christian. And the truth of the matter is this, they're, they're not far off. You know how when you go to google.com and you begin to type in a search, it tries to guess what you're going to type based upon what the average number of people around the world are typing. And if you go to google.com, I did this before camp last week, and I typed in, why are Christians so, and hit the space bar, and you would not believe what the top five answers were. Top five answers on the board... Let me tell you what they were. Why are Christians so? This is what people are searching from around the world, compiled into a spreadsheet. The top five answers included why are Christians so mean? Why are Christians so judgmental? Why are Christians so divided? And you know, with all of the things that the world is searching for, never once did I read why are Christians so happy or blessed or kind, or loving. Most Christians are just not happy. And today's, you know, classic Christian, today's classic Christian really looks a lot like this classic car right here. It looks so much like that. In fact, if you were to ask the average person who doesn't go to church to describe Christians using a few words, they would probably use some words that sound a lot like words we would use to describe this classic car. And let me just tell you, I bet at one point someone took great pride in driving this former beauty around. But, but lack of repair has led to lack of usability, and now what you're seeing is a beater with potential but no shine. It's got tires but is probably hardly ever moving, if at all. It's rusted, it's limping along, one cylinder barely cranking it out, if even starting at all. And you know what this car needs? You know what it needs more than anything? Here's what it needs. It needs restoration. 
It needs restoration. And this week, the staff at this camp have prayed over one word. It's on your shirts. It's on your flyers. It's on everything. It's the word restoration. And Christians, most Christians, just like this classic car, need to be restored. You know, let me show you a car that is right around the same year, just side by side. Here we go. Yeah, everybody said, ooh. Everybody said, ah. Like, if you're going to go joyriding, if you're going to go for a joyride, like, don't, like, there's always that one sarcastic person who's like, I'll take the one on the right. Like, don't be that loser, okay? Um, girls, if that dude goes, I'll take the one on the right, just know he's not on the list for camp boyfriend this week, okay? <laughs> if you're going to go joyriding by, by public poll, who's winning, the car on the left or the right? Left or right? Yeah, the left is winning all day with the exception of those losers that had to say right. They just had to get it out of their system. If you're going to go for a joy ride, you're going in the car on the, the left. But here's the thing. I don't know much about cars. I don't know a whole lot. I don't know a ton. I know where the gas goes, the wiper fluid. I could change oil if I have to. I could repair a tire, maybe. But in preparation for this week of camp... The director, Steve, said our word is restored, so I started Googling about restoration. And I came upon the number one website with resources for restoring classic vehicles in the world. And they had a free download that gave you a step-by-step walkthrough of how to do a restoration. And I started reading it, and let me tell you that it was almost like reading a devotional book for a moment because of the things that it was saying and just how on point it was when it comes to our life. And so tonight, here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to do. I want to take our lives to the master mechanic because he's more than just a professional. He's the designer and the manufacturer. And tonight he's going to give us a diagnostic of exactly where we are and what needs to happen next. And so if you're ready to jump into scripture, say jump. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed. Everybody say blessed. This word, it's a Greek word, makarios. It means happy. Everybody say happy. happy. What is happy? Well, one, defini- one definition is when God extends his benefits. Nine times Jesus lays out exactly who is happy and who is not. And I know me. I know I want to be a happy person. I, I want to be happy. And I'd submit to you that we want to be happy campers. All in favor of being happy, say Amen. And so the restoration manual that I read says that step one, if you've got a car that's in need of restoration, you need to begin with, first of all, the plan. What's the plan? And so when you take this vehicle to a mechanic, the very first thing that he's going to ask you is, what's the plan? What are your aspirations for this vehicle? And so I called my dad, who used to be a master mechanic, and I started reading this manual to him, and he was telling me just how on point it was, and he's telling me his stories about when people would bring these junkers in, in need of restoration. And the first thing that you ask people is, what do you want to see done with this? And nine times out of ten, people will say, well, I want to see this car look 
like it was before. I want to see it look like it did before the decay and before the rust and before the brokenness. And the bad news is this, impossible. Can't be done. The good news, though, is you can make it better than it was before. You can't make it identical to what it was before, but good news, you can make it better. And so the next question that you've got to ask is, well, what's your budget? How much are you willing to spend? And I would submit to you tonight that some of us are trying to get our lives back to the point that it was before we messed up or before we had that collision or before this happened. And bad news is your life is never going to be exactly like it was before. But the good news is Jesus can make it better. And number two, he's going to ask you, what's your budget? How much are you willing to spend? And when it comes to the restoration of my life and yours, it's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you everything to see Jesus take who you are and make you into who he wants you to be. And so we're at camp this week to hear the voice of God with the ultimate aspiration of God, can you take me and make me better? And the next question is, what's your, what's your time frame? What's your time frame? Because you've got to understand that this restoration process doesn't just happen, boom, overnight. This is a process. And so you're going to need to leave your vehicle with the mechanic. You're, you're going to need to leave your life with the mechanic because the mechanic has three things that you don't. He has the shop, he has the tools, and he has the skill. And for the sake of our journey through scripture tonight, I'd like to submit to you that the shop is Piney Woods Camp. And the tools are the devotions and the small groups and the services like this one. And the skill, well, that's all God's. It doesn't get done if he doesn't do it. And so here in Matthew 5, Jesus is looking at this crowd of people and he has compassion But he also has divine wisdom. He knows that some of the people just want to see another show. They want to see another healing. They want to get another meal. But while they're searching for the miracle, they're really not interested in following the master. And so he's about ready to read a diagnostic report, if you will, to everyone in this massive crowd. And he's going to offer them the opportunity to make a decision. Do we leave our life in the shop And allow God's skill through God's tools to work on us or, or, the choice is yours, do you rust away, limp along, decay, become a useless Christian who lives a miserable life? All in favor of the first one, say amen. Amen. So the report is in, why are Christians so unhappy? Why does the average person in the world describe classic Christians in words that we would use to describe that classic car? And the mechanic says, I'll tell you why. Spiritual malfunctions. You've got some spiritual malfunctions. I chose that word because my grandfather had this car that he was so proud of. And it was like 90 years old or something once I saw it for the first time. And he was so proud of it because when it came out, it was the first car that could talk to you. And he thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And so this car, I guess they were trying to model it after that TV show called Knight Rider, where the guy's got the car that, named Kit that can do all the cool things. Like, there's about 10 of you that know what I'm talking about. 
That's the danger of making a cultural reference. Some people are just like, never heard of it. Um, Basically, there's this guy that people think is a superhero, but he actually never does jack. The car does all the work, and he takes the credit for it. But anyway, my grandpa had this car that could talk, and whenever you would do things in the car, it would speak the command out loud. And you got to know to that generation, that was like the coolest thing. The funny thing was, though, at this point, this car is breaking down all the time. And when it would break down, whenever it had this electrical problem, the voice would come over the speaker system and say, system malfunction, and then it would just die. And I thought that was the funniest thing. Like when I'm getting in the car with grandpa, I'm like, please, please let this car malfunction. Just so we can hear it go, system malfunction. (laughs) Because not only is it funny to hear the car say that, but it's funny to hear what grandpa says when the car says that. Like, so we're kind of rooting for both here. The the, the thing is in most Christians' lives is that (laughs) most of us have a hard time getting out a whole prayer without a system malfunction. There's so many of us that struggle to even get through a whole worship song, much less listening to a whole sermon. You know what's funny is my wife and I really like to go to the movies and I've been in packed movie theaters where people sat through a two-hour movie and never got up one time, but most people struggle to sit through a 45-minute sermon without having to go to the bathroom. You want to know why? System malfunction. And the mechanic says there's eight malfunctions in the life of an unhappy believer, so let's take a look at what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, he says, Well, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who thirst righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The master mechanic is delivering the diagnostic report. Here's what the happy Christian looks like. You want to be blessed? You want to be Makarios? Do you want to be happy? Here's how. Here's how the Christian, Christian life is supposed to work. This is what Christianity is supposed to look like. Here's how it's supposed to function. But it doesn't look like that for most Christians because of, well, really eight malfunctions in the life of an unhappy Christian. If we get these right, we'll experience happiness. David prayed in Psalm 51 verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. So tonight, let the restoration process begin. Okay, Jesus, where where do we start? How am I malfunctioning in my Christian life? Write this down. I wreck Christ's happiness in me when, number one, I'm pretending I have it all together. Verse number three says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And we're not talking about a false humility here. This isn't a confession of insignificance because God says that you have incredible value. The poor in spirit is an authentic recognition that I am bankrupt of any spiritual capital in and of myself. Anything good in me, God did it. Anything bad in me, I did it. 
And we can put on a smile and we can post filtered photos and we can attempt to fool everyone around us into thinking that we're happy. But here's the thing. The more we try and fool other people, the more we make a fool of ourselves. because the happiest people, the happy Christian is the one who readily admits there's nothing I can do to make myself worthy before God. Everything that's good and worthy and righteous in me is a direct credit to God's account and I am nothing without him. And when I try to pretend that I've got it all together, happiness is headed for a collision course. Here's the second one. Failing to call sin what God calls it. I will wreck Christ's happiness in me when I fail to call sin what God calls it. Because verse number four says, blessed are those who mourn. And this word mourn, we'll talk about later this week. It's not just a casual bad feeling. This word mourn, of the nine Greek words that are used for sorrow, this is the deepest, it's the harshest, it's the most broken one. It's an intense sorrow over sin and its effects in my life. Well, what what is sin? What do you mean to be sorry over sin? Well, ready for the church definition? You ready for it? Sin is the transgression of the law of God. Well, that didn't really help me. <laughs> let, me give you, let me give you a practical application. Sin is utilizing anything against the purpose for which God designed it. That's sin. Anything outside of utilizing this for what God says it's used for, God labels that as sin. Well, I, I'm going to need an example. Here we go. God created sex for the purpose of unifying one man and one woman in one marriage for one lifetime. Amen. And anything, anything sexual outside of the unification of one man and one woman in one marriage for one lifetime, anything outside of that, say anything, Yeah, God says that's sin. That's what God calls it. Well, what about, yeah, go ahead and be done with those questions because God says I made it for a reason, one reason only. Amen? Here's another one. Psalm 150 verse 6 implies that if you have breath, you are to praise the Lord. God created your lungs and your lips for the praising of his holy name and for the building up of other people. And so when you utilize those lungs and those lips for anything other than that, I'm talking about when you use it to gossip about your friend or to lie to your neighbor or to complain about something. Here's the thing. You're utilizing those lungs and those lips for something that God never intended them for. God says that is, say it. God created your mind for learning about him and for loving him. Matthew 22 verse 37 speaks of that. And before you try to get me in trouble and say, well, 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 well I don't really need to learn about, about these particular things. You know, <laughs> can I just tell you that the more you learn about science, the more you discover the complexity of the God that created you? Can I tell you that the more you learn about mathematics, the more you develop your mind with logical reasoning capabilities, the more you're able to search for the absolute truths of the universe that can be found only in God. 
The more you study and train your mind to appreciate literature, the more you're able to glean from the pages of God's word. What I'm saying is even your learning in school can be an act of worship when your focus is on God and his glory. So utilizing your mind for the plotting of anything other than that which would bring God glory, you know what God says that is? Yeah, you got it. Wait, wait, but, but, but what about, can, can I get this close to the line? But, but the Bible doesn't exactly say, you know what? I'm beginning to really see that even those questions border on sin because the goal of asking them is to see how much I can gratify my flesh rather than asking how close to God can I get. I think it's time we stop calling it, well, that's my personality. It's time that we stop blaming it on the Enneagram. It's time to stop blaming it on your genetics. No, let me tell you what God says it is. It's sin. God calls it sin. And when I call it anything other than what God calls it, I'm on a course for collision that is going to wreck Christ's happiness in me. Here's another one. Refusing to be led by the Spirit. What's wrong? Why are Christians so not happy? Because they're refusing to be led by the Spirit. In verse number five, Jesus said, happy are the meek. And this word meek carries with it the connotation of strength that's under control. It's not weakness. Rather, it is a surrender to the leading of the Holy Spirit. A beautiful illustration of that principle in action is like an incredible horse. Horses have incredible strength. We judge how strong a car engine is by using a term. Do you know what it is? Horse power. How many horses would it take to do what this engine can do? And yet, I remember being in Somerset, Kentucky at summer, at summer camp, riding around on the horses, one of my favorite things to do. And one day, the realization that this joker is like 300 pounds, and I am like three pounds And yet I'm controlling it through a string in its mouth? How? Meekness. Strength under control. Maybe the reason why you're so unhappy is because you're fighting against the reign of Christ in your life. And if I'm making my own decisions, I'm making the wrong ones. But if I'm allowing Christ to steer my direction, I know I'm going to be in the lane he wants me to be in. I'm going as fast as he wants me to go in the direction of happiness every time. Take it from Jesus. He said that the meek would be happy. A friend of mine says, if you think meek means weak, try being meek for a whole week. And you'll find out that it's not easy. Why are Christians not happy? Here's another one. They're filling up on junk food. Verse number six, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. I've got a little adopted brother named Hudson, and one of my favorite memories of Hudson is his great affinity for Skittles. He loves Skittles, like on an unreal level. And only the red pack, only the red kind. You can keep the green pack. You can throw the, the purple pack in the trash. It's nasty. Like, bring me, the, bring me the red pack of Skittles all day long. Hudson loves them. And so his dad, his dad is a, a preacher as well. And so he would tell people, I'm out, your son loves Skittles. And people would bring them to him, like, by the pounds. 
And so Hudson had Skittles hidden all over his house, like anywhere that you'd look. It just, anytime I'm over there, I'm like pulling a, a book off the shelf and there's Skittles hid back there. It's, they're everywhere. In his bed, it's gross. But the thing about Hudson was his mom was actually a pretty incredible cook. And so one particular night for his birthday, she is making his favorite meal. And he comes to the table, and for the next 45 minutes, he just kind of pokes around on his plate, just kind of moving food around. And finally, his dad says, hey, your mom worked hard on this, and she made your favorite meal, and you are not getting up from this table until you eat it. Side note, we need more parents like that. Youth leader said, amen. I think some of the times the reason why we pick and choose when we're going to go to church and what part of the Bible we're going to listen to is because our parents never taught us that you have to eat broccoli even though it doesn't taste good. But anyway, his dad says, come here. And he pulls Hudson's face under that light that was hanging in the middle of the dining room and there it was, two streams of Skittle juice streaming down the ends of his cheeks. You see, Hudson wasn't hungry and thirsty for the good stuff because he had filled up all day on the trash. And you want to know why most Christians aren't happy? Well, because we're desperately searching for hearts from people rather than seeking the heart of God. You know, when I was growing up at camp, every preacher, every preacher always had to harp on two things, like, drugs and alcohol. That was all they were ever preaching about. That was like the worst thing ever. Drugs and alcohol. Not so much anymore. It seems like every pastor, every youth pastor has a way of throwing in a little thing about social media into every sermon. You know what I'm talking about? It's like social media is the new drugs and alcohol sermon for camp. But it's for a reason. Can I tell you why? Because Jesus said, happy are the people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But Satan is destroying Christians every day with internet thirst traps. You know that your scrolling on Instagram is called a feed. And what you eat matters. And when I'm hungry for anything other than the word of God, brace for impact, you're headed for a wreck. And the casualty will be Christ's happiness in you. Here's another one, expecting much from others and little from self. Because Jesus said, blessed are the merciful. So when I'm expecting a whole lot from other people and not much from me, happiness is getting ready to disappear. It's funny how when we mess up, when we mess up, it's situational. But when other people mess up, it is, well, it's, it's intentional. It's a character flaw. It's like when I'm late, I'm going, I'm so sorry, guys. I'm sorry I'm late. There's just a lot happening. Man, my, my alarm didn't go off. I didn't hear it. And like then I got up and oh, my, my, my dog was just going crazy and just all kinds of, un- like, please forgive me. I'm so sorry that I'm late. But when they're late, it's like, Psh, they really need to get a better morning routine. They're probably freaking lazy. That's why they're not here on time. You notice that? How when it's us, it's situational. Like when, when, when I don't get the work done, I'm like, guys, I'm so sorry. Can I, let me just, I've got a lot going on in my life right now. And oh my goodness, like just bear with me, guys. And, but when somebody else doesn't get it done, our first reaction is, oh my gosh, they're the worst. They really stink at life. No mercy. 
Merciful people are happy. Why? Because they receive mercy in return. That's what Jesus said. But merciless people are miserable because, well, no one will ever meet their standards. Not even them. And that's why they're so unhappy all the time. Why are Christians so unhappy? Here's one. When my body does one thing while my mind does another. Because Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse number 8, look at the text. Do you see it here? Blessed are the pure in heart. The Bible doesn't say blessed are the virgins. It's a good thing because some of us would be exempt from happiness already. But some of you are in here going, oh, well, good, because I've never slept with, well, the whole Sermon on the Mount thing that Jesus is delivering here. He's going to use phrases like, you've heard it said, but I say unto you that if you look lustfully at another person, like pornography, the bachelor, girls thought they were exempt for a second, but... Why are they only watching Bachelor in Paradise? That's what I'm saying. Mm. When you look lustfully at another person, you know what Jesus says? It's the same. He said, you've heard it said that you have to sleep with the person to be guilty of adultery, but I say unto you, if you look at them that way in your own mind, you're just as guilty before God of the same sin. That's why he doesn't say blessed are the virgins. He says blessed are the pure in heart. This isn't just a a male issue, it's a human issue, and it pertains to more than just sexuality as well. When we speak about pure in heart, that's typically where we go to immediately, but I'm talking about are your motives pure? Because this is the reason David writes in Psalm 19, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in God's sight. God sees your thoughts as if they are really happening in your life. Have you ever stopped to think about what you think about? Are your motives pure? Because when your body's doing one thing but your mind is doing another, oh my friend, happiness is far from you. And so that's why God says man looks on the outward appearance but I look on the heart. If you're going through the motions, if you're here at camp and you got the hand raised thing down and you got the Bible reading thing down but in your mind you're thinking about this and in your heart of hearts you're far from the things that you are singing and professing to believe this week. This is why so many Christians are unhappy because their body is excellent. They're pros at going through the motions, but their mind and their heart is so far from God, and they're not happy. Why are Christians not happy? Well, they're constructing walls instead of tearing them down. Jesus said in verse number nine, blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemaker carries with it more responsibility than peacekeeper. Peacekeepers just try to maintain a good vibe and keep it free from stress, but that will stress you out every time, let me tell you. Peacekeepers see the obstacles and run from them or hide them under the rug, but a peacemaker is happy in Christ because they see the obstacles ahead and they, Ephesians 6, make their feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We're talking about a shoe with spikes in it that's able to take a stand in the dirt and say, I'll fight for the peace of my neighbor. 
Blessed are the peacemakers. Why? Verse number nine says that they shall be called the sons of God. When you're building walls between you and other people, rather than tearing them down, God's happy far from you. Because every, listen, every fence that you build around your life that are built with the planks of offense, they offended me, they offended me, so I'm building a wall, and I'm keeping people out, and I'm not going to be hurt like that again, and I'm not going to be talked to like that again, and I'm building walls, and I'm constructing walls. Listen, you will live a miserable existence, because the calling of the Christian is to tear them down. To tear them down. Every wall you construct is just one big concrete barrier between you and God, and I promise you'll crash into it. Jesus said, here's the last one. Eight malfunctions in the life of an unhappy Christian. This is a big one. When I'm fighting for my rights rather than letting God be right. Verse 10, verse 11, blessed are those who are persecuted. Happy are you when others revile you and persecute you. See, we've got this epidemic in our culture. It's a virus, and it's not called COVID. It's called control. And somewhere along the way, even Christians started to believe that they had the right to be right. And let me just say, I'm thankful that I live in the United States of America where we have rights. But if all I ever do is angrily fight for my rights, my rights, my, those are my rights. You're going to listen to me. I'm going to be heard. You've spoken. Now you got to shut up so that I can speak. No, no, no. <laughs> Find me one happy activist and prove me wrong. I'm here to tell you that when I'm fighting for my rights rather than just letting God be right, happiness is far from me. Jesus promised you, if you're living godly in Christ Jesus, you will. You will suffer persecution. And you'll be happy about it. Because in the moment, when I see striving to be right and I just let God be right, happiness is with me as I look in the rearview mirror and I see Romans 8, 28. God is working all things together for the good of them that love God and are called according to his purpose. Ask the average churchgoer today, was Sunday a good one? How was Sunday? And if they say, oh, it was great, and you say, what made Sunday awesome? Top five answers on the board. One of them is going to be, it was a great crowd. Great crowds are following Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. See it in verse number 1, seeing the crowds. Back in chapter 4, great crowds. That might be the pinnacle for the American church, but... It's not what Jesus had in mind. Hey, I don't want you to put your Bibles up or fidget with anything. I want you to look up here for just a second so that I can tell you that people here are seeing the show, but they're not happy. They're getting healed, but they're not happy. People in crowds just like this one would be fed for free, miraculously, but not happy. And today, so many followers of Jesus are not happy, not blessed, And to that, the world might say, oh, classic Christian. But tonight we say, not anymore. The diagnostic looks bad, but I know the one who can restore it, the master mechanic. It's going to cost me everything that I've got, but in the end, I'll have everything that I need. And I'll have everything God wants for me. 
It won't be exactly, my life won't look exactly like it did before tonight. But God says it'll look better. So tonight, thanks for coming to the shop. This has been your diagnostic report. The master mechanic has the tools and the skill to restore your broken, unhappy life. And the question is, will you hand him the keys? Eight malfunctions in the life of an unhappy Christian. Chances are one or two of them described you. So what are you gonna do about it? This week, welcome to the shop. God has the skill. What he needs from you is one thing. Surrender the keys. Well, they're just driving me up a wall. (laughs) Stop handing them the keys to your life. Give God the keys and let him drive you in his will. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, two questions tonight, two groups of people, Jesus said, are you lost? Would you be honest enough to say, Pastor John, the reason why I'm not happy, here's here's why it is. I've never known true happiness. There's never been a time where I let God be the Lord of my life. There's never been a moment where I asked Jesus to forgive me of my sin and to save me. Are you saved? Or do you know that you have a relationship with God? Do you know that? Or is your life just a wreck? If you'd be honest and say, Pastor John, there's never been a time where I asked Jesus to come into my heart. And tonight, I want that to be, that's my thing tonight. That's what God's saying to me. It's for me. Would you just slip up your hand? I'm not saved. Would you just raise it? Thank you. I'm not saved. I'm not saved. Your youth pastors are looking because they want to talk to you about this. But maybe you'd be honest enough to say, "Uh, Pastor John, one of those malfunctions, yeah, that was me. I've got some stuff to talk about with my youth leader tonight because at least one of those, yeah, God was speaking to me during that. Is that you? Would you just slip up your hand? Hey, one of those was me. I'm wrecking happiness in my life because that's me. That's me. I'm not living life God's way. That was me. Amen. So in just a moment, we'll begin to sing a song to to seal this word in our hearts. And just like last night, thank you so much, friends. We exit this place in total silence because God's voice is the one we're listening for. And what God has to say to your friend is more important than anything you could say right now. So as your church group comes on the screen, we exit in total silence so that when we arrive at our small group location, we can begin to dig deep into what does this mean for me? Father, thank you so much for your word and for this report. Lord, it hurts. We're seeing the diagnostic and we're seeing issues. But Lord, we know that you've got the tools and the skill to restore our life. So we leave it in your hands. We trust you and we love you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone silently standing.